Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, I'll talk with Olivia Chambers, who swims competitively for the University of Northern Iowa and is legally blind. But first, we're going to talk about hobos. Hobo is a word that, for many of us, conjures up a cartoon character. But from the period beginning after the Civil War through the beginning of World War II, hobos were an important part of the workforce, migrant laborers who often did jobs that no one else wanted to do. Nathan Tai is an assistant professor of history at the University of Nebraska Kearney, who's done a great deal of research about hobos. He'll be giving an Iowa History 101 presentation tomorrow at noon called Hopping Freights and Harvesting Grain with Hobos in Iowa from the 1870s through the 1910s. This is an online program through the State Historical Society of Iowa. You can find out more at iowaculture.gov. And Nathan Ty is on the line with me now. Hello, Nathan. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Great. Thank you so much for being here. And let's talk about what hobos are to start, because as I mentioned, I think for a lot of people, it has become a a caricature, something that we grew up seeing, you know, maybe a cartoon character who was dressed up like a hobo. And a lot of us have forgotten that we're talking about real human beings. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the, the people who harvested the grain, built the roads, built the railroads. Um, these are miners. These are lumberjacks. Any industry um, in the American West, on the Great Plains, in the Midwest, that required a lot of physical labor um, and some skill and was poorly paid was, was typically done by these, these hobo workers, these, these transient workers who are, who are moving from town to town, you know, on boxcars and, and, and trains and, and by other illicit means. Um, so this started after the Civil War, at least uh, this, this period that you're focusing on. What was the, the trigger that sort of uh, started this group of transient, really truly homeless laborers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, w- it was a number of factors. One, the, the war itself, you know, you, you suddenly put a lot of folks out of work who have been in the armed forces on for both the United States and the Confederacy who are, who are suddenly out of work um, going back home. And they wanted, you know, opportunities or they didn't have opportunities at home. So a lot, you know, this also coincides with, with expanded American settlement in the West. And so folks are going West, railroads are getting built, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad is getting laid, um, other routes are opening up. The Homestead Act has been enacted, um, so there's a demand. So you have you have a, a lot of folks who need work. You have a lot of places that need workers. Um, and then in the late 19th century, you have a series of devastating economic depressions in the 1870s and then the 1890s. So you have folks just out on the street. You have folks who, um, you know, don't have any means. Um, unemployment rates are are incredibly high. Um, in the 1890s. That was the Great Depression before the Great Depression. And so this pushes a lot of people into this type of of lifestyle. So during that time in the United States, uh, post-Civil War, we also have many formerly enslaved people who are also left with nothing after emancipation and, and trying to find work. But Historically speaking, this group, the hobos that that we're talking about, that tends to be a predominantly white 
group? Uh, predominantly white. A lot of um, immigrants, you know, who are, who are coming um, over in the United States in this time period through Castle Garden or, or later in Ellis Island um, who are coming over. But there are um, a, a not insignificant number of, of African-American, predominantly men, who are also um, riding the rails and um, spending time on the road or um, working as, as hobo laborers, but, but are subject to, you know, um, conditions much more severe than, than white hobos, um, you know, extra violence by, by police officers and other communities that have, you know, racial restrictions, legal or otherwise, um, and, and other types of things. So it's, it is a, a fairly diverse community, um, but is, is by and large um, kind of white male um, workers. And of course, I'm sure there are many, many exceptions to that rule and probably some really extraordinary stories uh, hidden under those exceptions as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You talked about traveling by illicit means. So again, this was a migrant labor force and Mm -hmm. people were hiring them all over the country when they would show up at the right time. But these were people without means. So you talked about riding the rails. Tell me a little bit more about that culture, that part of the culture. So it's the, the ways that, you know, this usually worked is, is in um, kind of urban, uh, rundown urban districts at the time, which were known as skid rows, you would have employment bureaus um, where, where jobs would be offered, where they would say, you know, we need 500 men, we're building a bridge um, outside Des Moines, or I need, you know, 25 men for, for a, a section hand um, job out, you know, by Grinnell or something. And so um, these men would, would then sign up for these jobs. Um, and occasionally would, would then be paid to, to, you know, they would be given like a ticket or something um, to, to make it to the job. Um, but they would cash that in and then, or they would put it into their savings um, and then they would hop trains, um, you know, to and from the job site or, or in and out of town. Um, again, because you're, you're not making a lot of money, you have to save what you have. Um, and often the, the employment is, is related to the railroad in some capacity. Um, and so you would you would hop on trains um, in open boxcars or what was known as riding the rods. Um, older forms of boxcars had these these metal rods underneath, and so you'd slip in under that. Um, and in the era of steam locomotives, trains stopped much more frequently um, to refuel and things, and so it was easier to get on these things, hop onto these trains, um, and and kind of move that way, just move from town to town or or from state to state, you know picking up jobs along the way to, to survive. Tell me about Iowa's place in this and, and what would have drawn these laborers to the state? You know, I was, I was an interesting um, space within kind of the wider cosmology of, of hobo labor is it's, it's Chicago is recognized as kind of one of the, the, the so-called capitals of, of kind of the, the, the transient community that, that a lot of men would winter over, that, that there were um, spaces for them, missions, um, flop houses, shelters, um, social services, other things that were, and, and, and union um, halls that supported them in Chicago. And then a lot of hobo labor would follow the wheat harvest actually up on the southern plains up north into Canada. And so Iowa was kind of between both this, this big wintering over place and then, you know, is this uh, gateway to, to the wheat belt um, that a lot of these men were working in. But, but farmers in Iowa also needed hobo workers before you had 
farm mechanization. Um, and as, as you know, many of your listeners know, and, and Iowans should all know, is, is, is farm, farming is a labor-intensive um, vocation. But, but before you had mechanization, it took a lot of men just to, to harvest wheat, to, to you know, um, husk your corn, to, to do everything. And so um, during the harvest, these, these hobos would, would show up um, you know, and farmers would, you, you could almost set your watch by it. Um, there's, there's Hamlin Garland, who's a, who's an uh, Iowa author, you know, from the, the turn of the century talks about that. They, they reached our neighborhood in July, arriving like a flight of alien unclean birds and vanished into the North in September as mysteriously as they had appeared. And so the hobos knew that there was work. They would come to the farms. Farmers would go down to the depot, um, and that's usually where the where the hobo workers would be hanging out. And they would say, you know, hey, I need, I'll pay you three dollars a day if you help me with my wheat, or I'll have to pay you, you know, three dollars a day if you help me with your corn, or I need a hired hand this season, or what have you. And and that's how they would find employment and and work within the the Iowa economy. And then. So quoting that excerpt uh, gives us a little bit of insight into how Iowans who lived in these communities might have thought about the hobos. That doesn't sound like a very positive image. Um, it's it's not. There's been um, since the, the first laws were codified in the state in 1851, there has been a there had been a vagrancy statute. Um, and then in the 1890s, they uh, expanded that in the state legislature to, to specifically target to tramp workers, another term for, for hobo workers. Um, and so oftentimes in these communities, um, you know, they, they are, they are a, a, un, or a welcome nuisance. Um, a, a colleague of mine refers to them as indispensable outcasts, um, that you, you need these people for a successful harvest, um, but that doesn't mean you want them around. Um, they are underpaid, overworked, they are poor, um, you know, they work hard. And so often sometimes farmers will talk about, you know, the, the harvesters going down to the saloon and just spending all their money, um, you know, or, or um, you know, bringing about ruin to, to, to farm families if you kept your, your hobos on too long. And so, you know, men were imprisoned. Um, men were, were in different communities in Marshalltown. They, they picked dandelions off the courthouse lawn. Um, in other communities, they would they would break rock in in rock yards, kind of like you would see in a Looney Tunes cartoon, um, and then the rock would be used for the roads. Um, and so they are they are thrown off trains, they are abused. Um, some of a lot of times, the historical evidence for the presence of hobos is bodies found by railroad tracks. Mm. Um, it's a really brutal um, lifestyle that that is you know you don't do willingly necessarily do it to survive and and communities needed them exploited them and then pushed them along um but again could set their watch on this kind of process to repeat every year and there really was a strong culture that developed around uh, these hobos i mean with uh, with the relationships that were formed and the the travelers that would I'm sure, encounter each other from time to time. Um, and, and after the break here, in just a moment, we'll talk a little bit about Brit, one of the towns in Iowa that celebrated hobos uh, and has been holding the National Hobo Convention since 1900. But, I mean, th- there really was a subculture to this kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it's you, you see it most readily in kind of American folk music. Um, you know, you hear folks, Woody Guthrie has hobo songs, Woody Guthrie. Um, rode some trains in his day. Joe Hill, who was a, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, has, has wrote some of 
some of the classic labor and American folk songs. Um, and so, you know, it, it gets at a lot of things. It's, it's, it's wandering, it's traveling, it's adventure, um, it's music, it's um, a lot of these things that get wrapped up into American folklore in, in a variety of different ways, which is why I think that these people have such an iconic position within kind of popular culture. We'll take a short break. Uh, We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with historian Nathan Tai. He'll be doing a presentation with Iowa History 101 through the State Historical Society of Iowa tomorrow at noon. The presentation is Hopping Freights and Harvesting Grain with Hobos in Iowa from the 1870s through the 1910s. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Free Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism online at patrickfurrylaw.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in about 15 minutes, I will talk with Olivia Chambers, who swims competitively for the University of Northern Iowa and is legally blind. But right now, we're talking about hobos in Iowa, historically, from starting after the Civil War through World War II. Hobos were an important part of the migrant workforce in Iowa and elsewhere. With me is historian Nathan Tai. He'll be giving an Iowa History 101 presentation tomorrow at noon called Hopping Freight and harvesting grain with hobos in Iowa from the 1870s through the 1910s. And Nathan, I'm curious, what sparked your interest? What made you start researching hobos? Yeah, uh, people don't understand that you can study hobos for a living. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm one of the few, the few rare folks. But um, I worked with, with the homeless and, and actually worked at a, at a homeless shelter um, before I received my doctorate. And it was hearing the stories of my clients um, and no one was listening. Uh, it seemed like no one was listening and wanting to, you know, tell those stories of, of the marginalized, of, of the poor, of, of the homeless and, and doing my doctoral work, wanting to study homelessness and then, um, realizing that, uh, a lot of records for homeless shelters do not survive nor are, or are, are restricted by a variety of, of different things, um, different federal regulations. And so the hobos were, were kind of where I came to, um, because they, are poor record keepers, and they do have stories to tell. So they're kind of an infuriating subject to to focus on. Well, and you've also focused your research on records that other people who were not hobos kept of hobos coming through their communities, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of, you know, hobos are everywhere. They're in the newspaper. They're in criminal records. Um, there's a lot of great exchanges. You know, this is this is Iowa, but but Wallace's farmer has a lot of great editorials where women are writing in um, and asking for advice on what you should do when the hobos show up at your door. And uh, you know, do you feed them? Do you not? How do you do this? And there's a, there's a wonderful letter uh, from a woman in Missouri writing into the paper that says, you know, my boy is out on the road right now, and I. Uh, will always feed someone who knocks at my door because I hope that someone will do the same for me. And so there's a lot of, you know, heart and a lot of, of commentary about these people in, in a wide range of, of records all over all over the country. Now, you mentioned labor unions and, and their relationships with hobos. Um, there were efforts to unionize this labor force, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there was there was one union that that really took the hobos seriously. Um, a, a lot of the labor unions saw them as scabs, as strike breakers, as, as unorganizable. Um, and it's the the one group, the industrial workers of the world, uh, founded in Chicago in 1905, uh, was was one of the few unions, the only union that would organize hobo workers. And so they they made this concerted effort to unionize um, harvest workers. Um, and were very successful in doing that. Uh, hobos were able to do all across uh, the Great Plains and Midwest and, and the American West as well, have strike actions for, for better pay, better working conditions. Um, but, but in Iowa, what they were mostly known for is they would also hold um, free speech fights. And so in Sioux City, they had a free speech fight, they had actually a couple of free speech fights um, where, they would, where they would stand on street corners and then they would be arrested um, for for speaking, and so they would they would fight the the city kind of bans on street speaking as a violation of First Amendment rights, and and found some support in in Wallace Short, the mayor at the time, who who felt that this was was supported their their First Amendment rights. But but the IWW was was the only institution that really took them seriously and, and tried to fight for a a better way of life for them. Well, and, and you mentioned that they were really marginalized in, in so many ways. And, and there were times when they were met with violence when they rolled into town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That there are communities where um, people would go armed. There are accounts of mass arrests that, that you would send the, the sheriff or other law enforcement down to the hobo jungle where everybody in town knew where it was. It was always down by the railroad tracks um, and kind of round folks up escort them to the county line and then, and then, you know, move them along at the end of a shotgun. Um, and so it was really brutal conditions. And then, and actually at the turn of the century, there's even a hobo in Iowa who goes all the way to the state Supreme court because he sues the railroad um, because they throw him off a brakeman throws him off the train and he loses a foot. Oh. Um, and, but he ultimately is victorious actually. Um, and the railroad is at fault for, for his injury. Um, so it was a really rare effort. Um, so, so violence is incredibly common for, for these, these folks. Tell me a little bit about the relationship of hobos between like cities and rural areas, because of course we know that the railroad crosses Iowa in many places, many small towns exist because of the railroad and, and would make kind of ideal stops for hobos during the time. Um, did they tend to gather in larger cities or, or spread out across the countryside? So it, it, it would depend on, on kind of where they were in the harvest season and what industry, you know, these, these folks are in. Um, during the winter, hobos would typically winter over in, in many of these neighborhoods that, that are now um, these kind of Skid Row neighborhoods, iconic Skid Row neighborhoods in the U.S., the, the near west side in, in Chicago, um, the Bowery in New York City, um, Old Town in Portland, Skid Row in Seattle. Are, are spaces where hobos would stay, that they had flop houses, that they had missions, they had cheap restaurants and, and saloons and things. But then when, when the harvest would start or when jobs were coming in on the railroad or the mines or, or, or in timber, um, they would head out. But you would also find in, in other communities, and, and particularly in western Iowa, um, Council Bluffs, Omaha, and then Sioux City functioned as gateway districts for the wheat belt. And so oftentimes you would have hobos who would winter over in those communities um, before heading out to the wheat harvest or stopping along the way. If they were coming up from, from Oklahoma, they would, they would spend some time in Council Bluffs or, or spend some time in Sioux City. Uh, Davenport also had a, a very robust hobo population, but as a transient hub, as a transit hub, um, you know, along the Mississippi River, 
sometimes you would have hobos who are, are working, you know, again, transient workers who are working on the river um, and then they don't want to do that anymore. And so then they'll go work the harvest for a little bit and then, you know, go on and do something else. Um, so they would stay in these communities, um, you know, kind of uh, there would be a density in urban communities depending on the season. But then they would also, you know, spend times in small communities in my family. My family's originally from, from Griswold down in, down in Cass County. And, and, you know, we have family stories of tramps knocking on the back doors of the family farm back in the 1880s um, and 1890s. And so, you know, it was it was communities of all size um, across the state would, would certainly have folks, but there would be a, a larger density moving through the urban spaces. We have this email from Connie in Grinnell. She says, I grew up in a small town in Iowa in the 1950s, and I remember a time when I was a young girl, probably around seven or eight, and was told to stay home because there were hobos in town that day. It was said they would offer to sweep the sidewalks for an ice cream cone from the local drugstore. I then found out that one of my great-grandmother's brothers was a hobo and would sometimes Mm -hmm. hop off the train as it passed through town to visit her. It wasn't talked about much, so I never really knew the full story of my great-uncle's life and never had the pleasure of meeting him. And... uh, I think a lot of people probably have stories. Like Connie, you mentioned your family has stories. If if you have a story you'd like to share, you can give us a call at 866-780-9100, or you can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. As uh, Connie's story makes me think that, that it's possible that if there was someone in your family who was a hobo, that maybe that was something you didn't talk about, something that you might have even been ashamed of. And that makes me want to talk about Brit, Iowa, where hobos are mm-hmm. celebrated. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of unusual. Tell me a little bit about how that came about. So, so Brit's an interesting thing. It's, uh, you know, it's the only celebration um, of, of hobos in Iowa and uh Short of, of Hobo Day at South Dakota State University, it's the only hobo celebration uh, in the United States. Um, and it, it first happened in, in 1900, actually. Um, and then it took a, a little bit of a, a pause. And then in 1933, it, it started up again. But it actually comes from Illinois. Actually, I don't want to I don't want to steal Brit's thunder, but, but all the historical evidence uh, points to uh, Danville, Illinois, and and actually a newspaperman who this is the late 19th century. And so it's kind of a high point for fraternal societies, the Elks, um, Masons, you know, Eagles, so on and so forth. And so they decide to have tourist union number 63, this, this newspaper man from uh, Seymour, Illinois. And they decide to have a hobo convention in Danville where they dress like hobos. They pretend that they're hobos and they're going to have a whole celebration. Um, And they, they make all sorts of press announcements and things. And then real hobos show up. And, and they the must folks, have been surprised by that. And then the folks in Danville are like, oh, what did we do? Um, and eventually they, they, they do. Um, the folks in Danville don't want it to happen anymore. So the next year it moves to Brit. They, they kind of reach out to different communities who, who would be willing to do it. And it gets even more um, national and, and even international press when it happens in Brit in, in 1900, in the fall of 1900. And a lot of newspapers, the Omaha Bee sends a photographer to, to document all of the comings and goings and, and real hobos do show up there. There's going to be meals. There's going to be celebrations. There's going to be all sorts of things. And, and the Omaha Bee writes um, about this, this convention in, in September of, of 1900, that uh, the Brit convention taught the political economists and criminologists a lesson that hobos or those pretending to be hobos could organize and advocate for their partners on the road. Um, and so it became this opportunity where, it kind of defended those those people, making them actually something worth celebrating. 
Um, and so then in, in it, it passed away. And then in 1933, you know, amidst the depression, um, the, the event is restarted and, and continues to this day as, as the only celebration of the hobo um, in the United States. Now, for me, before reading some of your work and, and doing a little more research, honestly, uh, thinking about hobos always made me think of the Great Depression. Um, but this mm-hmm. is obviously a much longer period and a, a much deeper culture than just that period of time. And you've said that it basically lasted through World War II. What brought this mm-hmm. to an end to a degree, or at least mostly? Yeah, it's, it's a multifaceted kind of end. And, you know, historians, we always like complexity. So it's it's a mix of things. So it's, you know, the hobos really go on the decline beginning in the 1920s. Um, there's beginnings of farm mechanization. Uh, folks just don't need as much labor uh, as they did. Uh, the Depression is a, is a spike, certainly pushing untold numbers of men out onto the road, men and women um, out onto the road. Um, but what, what really kind of declines this form of migrant labor is, is farm mechanization. You just don't need a whole threshing crew anymore. Um, you can do it with a machine. Um, you also have, you know, a lot of the folks who were on the road in the depression enlisted in the second world war and came back, those who came back and, you know, they don't, want to be a hobo anymore. They don't want to be a migrant field hand anymore. They want to use the benefits that they have accrued as, as veterans of the Second World War, the GI Bill, you know, housing support, different kinds of things. Um, they don't want to do that anymore. And, and the other aspect of the Second World War is, is those remaining agricultural industries that still are very labor intensive um, and require a migrant workforce. The, the Bracero program, where, where Mexican workers are brought over, um, really replaces hobo workers in a lot of the industries that, that remain very um, labor dominated, um, that the Bracero workers have the ability to be deported and can be paid less than than transient workers. And so that for for many employers is seen as a benefit and right. that these different factors kind of ultimately push the hobo. And, and we know that, that we have a, a migrant workforce in the United States that is complicated today and a very important part of our economy, but, but looks very different from the hobos that, that we're talking about during this time period. Why do you think it's so important to understand this movement and, and this culture? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, these are the people who, who laid the rails. These are the folks who harvested the wheat. These are the folks who, who cut the trees and, and, and dug the mines. Um, and they made so much of the agricultural economy, of, of the extractive economy, other aspects of the American West and, and are unsung, untold or, or misunderstood. Um, and just kind of knowing that history um, and, and as, as you know, the email recommended, once you start poking at it, you find it in your family tree or you find the family stories or you find these things. We're all connected to this story, um, whether we know it or not. Um, and that's, I think, ultimately its, it's importance. Well, and uh, Connie mentioned in the 1950s um, that there were hobos in town. I mean, there the the culture did not entirely die out. My dad has a story. He grew up in Ogden, Iowa, and one of the hobo kings crowned a hobo king at that convention in Brit um, passed away in 1966 in the city park in Ogden and was pretty much universally mourned there and and got a lot of media attention. So that that culture did continue to exist, but it also morphed, right? Yeah, it became, you know, I, I think folks of a certain generation remember hobos as either, um, you know, a, a, a clown that you would see at, at 
Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey or as a Halloween costume in the 1960s. Um, it, it wasn't a human. It was a, it was a figure. It was a caricature. And um, there are still people who, who do ride trains illicitly and illegally, and the railroads will certainly tell you about that. Um, it's, a, it's a different type of culture. It's, it's not folks who are working wheat harvests or anything, but um, there are still kind of remnants. Um, and you also have American folk traditions in, in folk music and other kinds of ways. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of hobo um, people who are on the road who, who become authors or write about their experiences. Carl Sandburg, uh, for example, um, spent some time on the road and, and writes actually quite a bit about it. Um, and others, you know, kind of in the American canon, Nelson Algren or um, Jim Tully, who, who spent some time on the road, do, do write about it. So there, there's a lot of ways in which it persists or continues or appears in, in uh, different ways. You encourage people who have these stories in their families to share them. What, what should we do with them? You know, write them down. I'm always happy to, um, you know, chat with anybody. I'm, you, can, you can find me um, and, and reach out to me. I'm always happy to chat and talk about hobos. But, but contribute those stories to your county historical societies, the, the State Historical Society of Iowa. Um, you know, they, they are integral stories to your community, to, to, to your history, and, and they should be shared. And so if you have the opportunity, write it down, record it. Um, and, and donate it to, to your local historical institution. Um, they would be welcome to have it, and eventually I'll find it. Um, but, <laughs> but would be really happy, happy to, happy to have that documented. And and you're working on a book, right? Yeah, slowly but surely working on working on my book on on, on the history of mobility and, and, and transient labor. Um, coming slowly but surely. This is this is tomorrow's presentation is is a big part of it. So. I'm, <laughs> Excited to share. All right. Well, I won't press you for a timeline. I know that's that's not easy. But what are you still hoping to discover? Well, you know, um, there are there are parts of the community that that aren't all that well documented. Women who who rode the rails. Um, there's a there's a large number of trans men who who rode the rails at the turn of the century. Um, hobos who who non-white hobos hobos of color are also um, underrepresented in the historical archive. Um, so, so there are things. I have feelers out. I know where some diaries are at. I know where some letters are at. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, finding those needles in the haystack um, and, and kind of seeing what, what comes up. Well, I hope you'll come back when uh, you publish your book and we'll talk more about what you discover. Nathan Ty, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nathan Tai is an assistant professor of history at the University of Nebraska, Kearney, and he's done a great deal of research about hobos. He'll be giving an Iowa History 101 presentation tomorrow at noon. It's called Hopping Freights and Harvesting Grain with Hobos in Iowa, 1870s through the 1910s. It's an online program through the State Historical Society of Iowa. You can find out more at iowaculture.gov. Coming up in just a moment, we will meet swimmer Olivia Chambers. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Olivia Chambers is a sophomore at the University of Northern Iowa. She is a swimmer, and she's having a pretty extraordinary year. Last month, she won two golds and a bronze medal at the United States Paralympic National Championships in Charlotte, North Carolina. She grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and has been swimming for a long time. Her love of swimming and drive to compete has endured through a serious illness that left her legally blind. And she is on the line with me now. Hello, Olivia. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. And and I want to start with when you fell in love with swimming. How old were you when you started competing? I was four years old for my first, like, summer league meet and then just went from there. Wow. What, what do you think um, you really fell in love with about the sport? I really love, like, getting up and racing everyone else in the pool. And it's just... It was just so fun. It was different than running on land or doing some kind of contact sport, swimming. You could just get in. It was your own race, but, yeah, it was still, like, you still had a team, and it's just a lot of fun. I am always in awe of competitive swimmers when I hear about their workout schedules. I mean, and and even in elementary, junior high, and high school, the twice-a-day workouts and, and just this incredible commitment to the sport. Was swimming a really, really big part of your life as you were growing up? Yes, it always has been. All right. So it's filled many, many, many hours. Um, so as a as a competitive swimmer, did you dream about competing in college and maybe beyond? Yes, it was always my dream. I mean, every little kid has the dream of going to the Olympics. And I've always wanted to swim in college. And as I got older, it shifted more towards looking for colleges to swim at. And now I'm here. Tell me about losing your sight. That happened three years ago. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah. So when I was 16, I was just reading a book one day and my vision went so blurry I couldn't read the words anymore. And we thought it was obviously strange. But I went to the doctor and they said I had accommodative spasm and my vision could come back. Long story short, that was not the case. And it just kept I just kept losing more and more vision. And the doctors for a year and a half told me that it would come back. And then we found out that it wouldn't. I we're still on the road to getting a like confirmed diagnosis, but right now we know that I have two mitochondrial disorders, the just a regular mitochondrial disorder and the mitochondrial gene deletion syndrome. They're not sure how much that has affected my vision, but it is a start and we're still looking for more. How incredibly terrifying that must have been to have that happen and to not to not have a diagnosis, to not know why it was happening. What was that like? Yeah, it was really scary um, just to keep losing your vision and to not know why. Just, yeah, it was scary, but I just kept swimming, and that's what kept me going because I could always swim. I could figure out ways to work around my vision loss, and that's just how I kept going. As you were dealing with this vision loss, I can imagine that you lost the ability to do a number of other things. You were 16 years old. Did you already have your driver's license? I did. So in Arkansas, you're able to get a hardship license. So I started driving at 15. And yes, I did. I can't drive anymore. Wow. That must have been a real blow. Mm -hmm. So 
were there times when you thought you might not be able to swim anymore? No, I knew I'd always figure it out. <laughs> wow. And how have you figured it out? Because I I have a hard time imagining how you can swim competitively without the ability to see. How have you adjusted? So at first I I did run into a lot of walls, but now I've they use well like the completely blind swimmers use what's called a tapper in the pool and you just tap them when they need to turn. So I thought about, I tried it, and I really did not like relying on someone else to tell me when to turn. So I just went to counting my strokes. So I count um, all of my strokes, each 25, to, and then once I hit a certain number, I know it's time to turn. Oh, wow. So a tapper is somebody who would sit at the edge of the, the pool and, and have something that they could literally tap you with when you were close to the wall. Is that, that what I'm understanding? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I, I, I can imagine, was this scary? Because you're really fast. You could hit a wall pretty hard. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I did, I did slow down a little bit before I learned how to do it, but I, it was a little scary in the beginning. <laughs> so you count your strokes. Tell me a little bit more about how that works. So each stroke I take, like, when one arm goes over, that's one. The next one, two. And I just went all the way until I usually take around the same number of strokes each 25. It's around like 15, sometimes 16. But once I'm around there, then I know like, oh, I'm getting close. Okay. And and then how do you know that it is time to turn? Because, I mean, obviously you're depending largely on touch. Mm-hmm. Um, It just... I kind of feel it. Like, I don't know how to describe it. I've just done so many turns in my life that I just kind of know. And I feel like I had 12 years of swimming before I lost my vision. So that, I think, plays a lot into it. Because it's not like the length of the pool changes unless Mm -hmm. you go from short course to long course. So the length of the pool will always be the same. And all of those years I had before really just taught me how to know when the wall is coming. So as you adjusted and learned how to swim without full vision, you were approaching time to go to college. Were you worried that you wouldn't be able to compete at the collegiate level? Um, A little bit. I mean, also during the time that I was getting recruited, COVID also happened. So that was another big fear because all of these schools were cutting their swim programs and that was getting scary that I wouldn't find one. So then I just emailed a whole bunch of schools and you and I just happened to be one of them. Well, I was just going to ask that. How how did you wind up in Cedar Falls, Iowa? Yeah, so I just, again, emailed a whole bunch of coaches and Coach Nick ended up answering and I took a visit out here. We weren't allowed to meet in person or meet the team, but I came up here and I loved the campus and I just knew it was the place. So as a competitive swimmer at UNI, are you competing against athletes that have their full vision? Yes. On the collegiate level, I'm competing against um, able-bodied athletes. And how does that work for you? I mean, you're you're a really extraordinary swimmer, clearly. Um, tell me, do you feel like your vision has slowed you down? 
I think in the beginning, yes, it did. But I think with the training I've had now, I'm getting back and better to where I was before. So that's good. <laughs> now, um, I want to talk about your recent successes with the, the Paralympic organization. When did you learn that that could be a part of your swimming career? Um, it was mainly after our conference meet last February. My coach was like, hey, have you thought about this? And I, it had been a thought, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then I was like, you know what? Maybe I can excel in this area and just see what I can do. So I decided to get classified. So why were you reluctant? I, I don't really know. I had to admit that my vision wasn't coming back and that I was um, visually impaired. And that was a huge step for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So in getting classified, I, I've talked to a number of other Paralympic athletes over the years. There are many different classifications that that determine who you're competing against. Um, tell me a little bit about that process, how you got classified and, and understood where you would fall in these competitions. Mm -hmm. So to get nationally classified, you just send in a bunch of medical paperwork and notes from your doctors. So that came relatively quickly. But then to get internationally classified, to compete like on an international level, you have to see one of the world like Paris para doctors. Mm -hmm. And that I so that I wasn't able to get classified until October because I had to go see one and they sent me to Mexico to see one of the doctors. And so then while I was there, it was just a series of different eye tests when I saw them. And I'm not quite sure what they were saying because they were talking in Spanish. But at the end, they told me I'd be an S13 athlete. And then they would tell me when I had to get reclassed. All right. And that was in October. You also competed while you were there, right? Yes, I did. All right. So, so you got your classification and then you immediately plunged into competition. And that went really well at the City Para Swimming World Series in Mexico. You won a silver and bronze in that competition. What was that experience like? It was crazy. It was really fun. I was super nervous going before because it was my first international competition. And I didn't know any. Well, I had met a couple of my teammates going but not very well and I met the coaches like once and so it was it was a little scary going down to Mexico with people you barely knew but yeah. it ended up being a lot of fun because it was just a whole different environment and you know being in finals like they had video cameras on you and it just all seemed so professional you mean like GoPro cameras so that people could could see like what was TV happening cameras oh, okay <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Um, so what is it like connecting with other athletes who have vision impairment? That that must it's such a unique experience that must really feel good to to meet other people who have a similar kind of experience. Yeah, it was really nice. It really just helped me see like I'm not the only one who has to go through this and that others have done it. So and just hearing their stories is really fun. I haven't met too many S13 athletes yet. But I've met a lot of other classifications, and it's all been the same. And you realize that everyone's an athlete. Everyone's pretty high up at that level, and it's just super neat. 
So you were competing for the University of Northern Iowa, and then now you are sprinkling in these Paralympic competitions in the midst of your season. How does that work? Yeah. So I just train with um, my UNI team, and when there's a para meet, I just head that way. Wow. Okay. Tell me about the United States Paralympic National Championships in Charlotte, because you were there just last month. Uh, what's the atmosphere like? Um, it was a lot like Mexico, except this time I got to meet a whole bunch of high-level USA national athletes, because in Mexico, there were still national team members, but it wasn't like the people who went to Worlds or anything. So I got to meet a bunch of, like, the big names in Paris swimming, so that was really cool, and even race against them. And then since it was in the U.S., my uh, mom was able to go to her first pair meet, and then my coach at, here at UNI, Ben, was able to be a coach for other para-athletes at the national. Oh, very cool. At nationals. Very cool. And you, you did incredibly well. You won two golds and one bronze medal. And so you finished first in the 400-meter freestyle and the 200-meter individual medley. You were named the swimmer of the meet, which is incredible. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank and, you. And also in finishing in first place in those two races, you beat three-time Paralympic champion Elizabeth Marks. What did that feel like for you? Um. Well, at first, so since it's mul- you race multi-class, it's not based on time. It's based on the point system. Okay. And I had no idea. You have no idea where you place when you right. finish. So you have to wait a while and while so, they figure it out. Yeah. You have to wait. And basically, in, I didn't know that I had won until they called my name to go up on the podium. And that was just such a cool feeling. I didn't know that I had won until then. And I was like, it was just crazy. Wow. So are you thinking about the Paralympics in a couple of years? It is a goal of mine. I would like to go, but we'll see what the future holds. All right. And what's what's the path to the Paralympics like? Is it just more competitions like the ones that you've been a part of already? Yes, there are um, trials and a whole bunch of other meets you go to to just get out there and get known. And then it really comes down to para trials that is the deciding factor to who's on the team. What are you studying at UNI? I'm studying biology and psychology. What do you hope your future holds beyond swimming? Well, I'd like to go to med school, but now that everything's changed with swimming, I'm not quite sure, but we'll see. I mean, I have time to decide and time to think about what I want to do, but med school was definitely on what I had wanted to do before I had started para and when I came into college. Exciting. You're obviously somebody who doesn't like to have a lot of downtime, are you? No. <laughs> no it's clear. So w- tell me about what being able to swim competitively after all that you've been through. What does this mean to you? Um, It means a lot that I'm still able to get out there and swim. And it's really cool to see that I'm actually becoming faster than what I was before I lost my sight. Um, it just really shows to me that I can really do anything I put my mind to as long as I don't let it stop me and just keep swimming has helped me 
get through a lot of stuff. Yeah, I can imagine that going through losing your sight, there were a lot of really dark moments. Did the fact that you could always swim, did that help you remember that you are the same person as you are before you had this illness? Yes, it helped a lot. It was probably one of the main things that kept me going. Your experience is unique, but of course, a lot of people go through through really difficult things, and a lot of people find that their dreams have to shift and change to to meet reality. From what you've learned, what would you tell somebody who is going through something similar? I would just tell them to not let whatever's going on, like losing your sight, to keep you from doing what you love. You can usually always find a way to work around, even if it's not the same way you did it before. You can still find a way to be able to do it. Olivia, thank you so much for talking with me. And when you qualify for the Paralympics, please come back and be on the show again, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, Olivia Chambers is a sophomore at the University of Northern Iowa. She is a swimmer. Last month, she won two golds and a bronze medal at the United States Paralympic National Championships in Charlotte, North Carolina. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. We had technical support today from Phil Moss. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.